Hey, Peace Nicks. Today's guest is Lawrence D. Mass. He's a specialist in addiction medicine. He was the first to write about AIDS in the press. And he's the co-founder of Gay Men's Health Crisis. He is currently promoting his most recent book on the future of Wagnerism, art, intoxication, addiction, codependence, and recovery. I had a great conversation with him. We got pretty political because there's a lot going on politically in our country right now. So we got into a lot of that. But I really did enjoy talking with him. And I know you will enjoy listening as well. His books, if you want to check them out, are available on Amazon. Or you can go to his website, lawrencedmass.com. So let's go ahead and dive in with Lawrence D. Mass. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. So, uh, so thanks for doing the podcast. This is cool. My pleasure. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. It's uh, I've been listening to uh, some of your recent podcasts, and I was just really impressed with the quality and depth of coverage. Uh, there's so much there that's really rich and valuable. Thank you for this, uh, for your site and the work that you're doing. Oh, that thank you. That means a lot. Thank you so much. So, Larry. Um, Let's uh, let's let's start with tell, tell me a little bit about yourself. I, I I read on you know I've been reading a little bit about you and stuff like that. And uh, uh, one of the fascinating things um, was that you were the, one of the first to write about the AIDS epidemic in New York. Right. I ended up writing what became what was the first press report on the epidemic that later became known as AIDS. You know, it had uh, earlier names. They they because it wasn't even clear that it was a single epidemic. The the first name was KSOI, Kaposi sarcoma, and opportunistic infections. They seem to go together, but not for sure. Um, other sort of epithetical names were quick quickly came along: the gay cancer and um, GRID, gay related immune deficiency. And it was another year before we uh, got the official name AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. So, yes. And so I was uh, doing that writing early on. I was the first to cover the epidemic on a, on a, on a regular basis. Uh, that was in the gay press in 1981. Yeah. Wow. And they called it, they call, you said they call it the gay cancer? Yeah, they had uh, yeah There's names like names, that, as, but... as you might imagine. I mean, your show, your podcasts are very much about the ignorance and anti-science and stuff that we are constantly dealing with, and you know, and um, you know, there it was. I mean, certainly not unexpected, but it just came right out. You know, uh, ways of. Uh, simplifying and trying to conceptualize uh, it, you know the epidemic and and blame it on a scapegoat or you know uh, behaviors and uh, a minority and all of that it was yeah. it was really a, it was an epidemic that was kind of tailor made for conservatives because the risk groups 
the first group, the one that really stuck out most was uh, gay men. Mm-hmm. But it was also African nationals, uh, Haitians specifically, um, you know, who are kind of uh, seen as an immigrant population and drug addicts. Yep. So and then there was there was one other risk group that didn't quite fit the stereotypes, and that was hemophiliacs, people getting these blood products. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you know, it was when I say tailor made for conservatives, you have the three, three uh, marginal uh, uh, outlying populations of uh, undesirables, you know, people who are considered, you know, uh, not mainstream, yeah. not, not people like us, right? Yeah. So, quote, people like us, you know. So, um, yes. Yeah, and that's why they weren't wanting to. At, for, at first, they didn't really care to do a lot about it. And um, and even even when the um, you know the drug addicts started dying from it, that they weren't they were acting like it wasn't even happening. They were just like, like for them in, in mainstream circles, they weren't even talking about that. And and a lot of because I, I did an interview with Maya Salovitz, and she was talking about when it first started happening, they were trying to tell people like, hey, drug addicts are getting this, and and people just weren't wanting to listen. And um, but at the same time, like you said, uh, my dogs are something's going on out there. <laughs> but um yeah it's it's really heartbreaking that and you're right it is so it's, it's a weird world we live in where if it doesn't fit the mainstream of the people that they tend to care about which is um you know straight um you know c- c- christian and it, i don't know it makes me think about what's going on in this country right now and i'm curious what your thoughts are about the uh, the whole you know roe v wade being overturned and all everything happening that we have a a, a christian almost a, a, a it's a large minority but as a minority of christians you know that are that are kind of hijacking the country taking us down a road that and and i look at it as it is it's their morality it's it's almost like they're people that have sex outside of marriage are having abortions it's almost like a, we want to control people in a way that that they like punish people for not living to the christian morality and that uh, uh, attacking abortion is is a, is a way i don't know it's it's textbook autocracy and fascism 101 is what you can call it. It's sort of like you can imagine a small cookbook with large print that has basic standard things that autocracies and autocrats routinely do in consolidating power. What a principal uh, method of this has always been scapegoating minorities. And it never, it, it wasn't always, so often it was the Jews first and, you know, like in the Second World War, they became, you know, the, the greatest scapegoats in history beyond the imagination of anything anybody could, you know, had. And, um, but um, always uh, gays, gypsies, women, uh, any kind of independent women, you know, the, the, the witches, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, so these, the, 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 there's always uh, a major sort of, you know, uh, going after individual rights and freedoms, especially involving minorities. That's um, that's fascism 101, and it's been repeated transhistorically. Globally, it is something that is absolutely predictable. 
we are in the middle of an absolutely textbook example of all of this. It's happening on a global scale. It's a nightmare. It's horrible. There's no uh, quick, simple, uh, easy answer because once these kind of things start to sweep uh, society and uh, you get you get involved in mob psychology and it's sort of like what what we're up against now is you can imagine a, a great herd of wildebeests in Africa and they start running with uh, under the leadership of several and you go and try to talk to one wildebeest wildebeest and say you know this isn't really very advisable and you know you're uh, there are actually problems. Uh, I mean, it's it's almost hopeless when there's a stampede. Uh, a stamp, you might call it like stampedes of stupidity. They're you know they they're mob and herd psychology and behavior, and there's no uh, simple. Uh, they're 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 predictable. They have caused untold uh, disaster and misery throughout history and across the world and. Here we are with with another one. I um, uh, uh, stampedes and stupidity is hilarious, but also terrifying. And when you think about it, um, like terrifying, I, I, utterly, yeah, you know. yeah. And 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 the problem is, is when you talk to when you talk to a wildebeest, they just accuse you of being in your own stampede. They say, no, it's you're, you're the one in the stampede of stupidity. It's not me. They don't they don't see they don't see it at all. And I and I hate it because I have I mean my whole family. I was raised very religious and very uh, Christian and. And I remember I, I protested abortion when I was like 12 years old. I didn't even know, really know what it was, but I was told it was baby murder. So of course I was, well, we got to be against baby murder. So I hold held signs and um, didn't really understand it. And my family, you know, when the Roe v. Wade got overturned, they celebrated and they're, they're and they're a part of this culture. And I can't even, I haven't even talked to them since it got overturned. I don't about I talked about any of this because I know, it doesn't end well if I, if I bring it up. It doesn't end with um, with, with the actual debate and actual understanding and understanding that I, I don't know how to how to handle these kind of situations with my family. And well, uh, <clears throat> the scapegoating of minorities is you know again sort of textbook you know how to like a cookbook. Uh, another thing is the way you respond to critics, which you just got at. Whatever they accuse you of, you simply turn it around and turn it against them. You make the same accusation against them. Never in history has there been a greater exemplar of this, as far as I know, I may be wrong, than Donald Trump. He's certainly in the vein of the rest of them, but I mean, he's, you know, perfected this, uh, you know, whatever you accuse him of, he's going to just turn it back on you and say, you're the ones who are guilty of this. Yeah. So, um, you know, so it's, it's absolutely standard. It's absolutely predictable. Then there's propaganda. So there are major, you know, techniques and patterns and things, all of them. There's nothing special or unusual about the, the current one. It bears striking resemblances to what went on in Germany between the wars in the buildup to World War II with Hitler and Nazism and we're smack dab in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's scary. And I think about 
just like all the sim- the, sim- the symbols that people have. You know, you think back in the Nazis, they had the Nazi symbols and they had the marches and everything. And now it's Trump flags. There's there's uh, these, you know, you see these. Have you, have you passed any Identical. of these? Yeah. In the red hats. And, and I, I even see people with yeah. red hats that don't say Trump. And I'm wondering, is the red hat a symbol now? Just because I wouldn't even wear a red hat if it said it has red long Sox. been uh, that uh, a symbol, just in the way you're describing. Absolutely. And um, have you seen any of these? Um, these wh- wh- where are you at? May I see that? Are you in New York City? I'm in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So you probably haven't seen in New York City where, where I, I live in Southwest Florida. So when I was driving out a little bit into the country and I passed a, just what you call it, but a, a, a whole like parade of huge trucks, like pickup trucks with Trump flags that just like about 15 or 20 of them just driving by you with Trump flags. Yeah, I mean, th- these, these, there's no question that this is being organized and promoted and perpetrated on a massive, uh, I would say not just, just simply American, but global scale. And that, you know, it's, it's done with a great deal of sophistication, a great deal of persistence and energy. Um, I uh, spend time uh, in South Florida, the East Coast, and we went to the Everglades uh, some weeks ago and, uh, well, a couple of months ago. And we were driving, you know, it's beautiful uh, driving through the Everglades there. We had a particularly nice day and... Uh, they're, they have a couple of little tiny villages where they still have tourist uh, uh, venues and things like that. And we stopped in one of them and, um, you know, uh, one of them had a big rooftop banner, uh, uh, Trump for president, enough of this shit, something like that. Yeah. And that was not as disturbing as one that started the whole ball rolling for me. It had to have been more than more than five years, about five or six years ago. Uh, I would occasionally go to Pennsylvania for gay events, you know, like camping events, uh, you know, summertime weekend kind of things. And uh, Jim Thorpe is a little town, uh, very scenic in the Lehigh Valley, I think it is. Uh, very pretty. Uh, Pennsylvania is very poor but um, it has beautiful, beautiful topography and land. Anyway, you, you drive up into this little town, so we're, uh, we're driving up and just looking around the town. Several of the rooftops and front porches had great big Confederate flags. Really? I could, I mean, what? What the hell is this? Well, it is, you know, that's the right right effect. what the hell I and mean, it's literally some kind of hell that i was completely unaware of in terms of scale in terms of depth in terms of you know seriousness and um i haven't been back to pennsylvania since i can't you can't tar uh, uh, you know uh, brand the whole uh, state as being like this but um clearly you know we're in the midst of this huge political thing now go, to go back to your 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 question about um about abortion um i'm a physician as you know and uh you know uh so for me uh, i'm actually a rather conservative physician in terms of how i uh, science you know my I, I put science you know i i i'm not a believer in far out you know, conspiracy theories. I'm very sort of right. science. 
So in terms of abortion, um, I don't have anything better to say than what the New England Journal of Medicine said in its editorial recently. New England Journal of Medicine is still our leading uh, medical journal and has top global credibility. So it simply pointed out that, you know, this is absolutely against the healthcare interests of women. It was totally unequivocal and clear the damage that this was going to do, the dangers that it posed, how it deeply anti-science and uh, anti-women it was. So this is the New England Journal of Medicine. So if you want to know what I think about abortion uh, and, and, and what the issues are and what the problems are, I recommend the recent New England Journal of Medicine editorial on abortion and its impact of the anti, the, the recent Supreme Court decision. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I want to ask you this then, um, the, uh, the Supreme Court, you know, they said that the Roe v. Wade was law when they all were sworn and then they, they went back on that. And now there's a lot of talk about the reversal of possibly, uh, of, you know, the reversal of gay marriage being law. Do you think that that's a real fear or? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, again, go back to this original idea of that we were talking about that, you know, when these consolidations of autocratic power take place, the minorities are always scapegoated and they're always scapegoated in tandem. It doesn't necessarily matter which one goes first. So the, again, this is textbook. This is that little cookbook 101 for fascism and autocracy with the large print that simply tells you, you know, what the rules are and how it's done. This is absolutely yeah. across the board. So you have uh, the whole, all the confrontations with, uh, with uh, black civil liberties, you know, uh, concerns and, uh, you know, all the, uh, the, the murders and, you know, the attacks on critical, critical race theory, which is just basically most uh, just stating truth, what we know about the history of racism and slavery and so forth. Right. And, um, you know, so you have blacks, you have, uh, the war on drugs is another, uh, uh, you know, prime example. I mean, drug addicts are considered, you know, these, uh, they're like, uh, considered like uh, the way gays are or poor people or minorities, you know, just parasites who yep. don't have their act together and who are, you know, basically, you know, uh, being parasites on society and who don't have morality and ethics and who, who basically they're, 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 they, the problems that they're having are problems that they brought on themselves. You know, the health problems, yep. These, they made the choice to use drugs and all this. Your website is the best one that I've seen. Now I'm not, there are, there are probably many others, very good ones. I don't know. Uh, I don't know them that well. Uh, I have to confess that. I mean, this is, getting into these websites and the podcasts is still relatively yeah. new for me, but um, yours has a terrific uh, number of, you know, podcasts, uh, uh, interviews with interesting informed uh, people who are involved in various aspects of drug addiction, uh, drug treatment, and um, who really lay out the issues of what we're dealing with. 
I heard on one, uh, you know, the, um, we, I think we are really being set back uh, decades in every major area of uh, healthcare, of, you know, social uh, progress, social integration, uh, uh, you know, cultural evolution. We're going back to the dark ages. And uh, again, that it, it doesn't work for anybody else, but it works for the top levels of autocracies and, you know, their leaders. Oh, I wonder what's in it for the people that are in the stampede that, you know, to use that um, metaphor again, like the people that I see that, that aren't rich, they don't have, you know, like I, I saw, for instance, a, a guy that was living in a van down here on the water, li- li- living on the beach in his van, had a little camp, uh, camp set up and he had a Trump sign on the beach that was now his property or whatever. And I just wonder what they think's in it for them when they, they're not getting anything out of any of it. Is Unfortunately, you know, again, it's that business of trying to reason with the with the uh, stampeding wildebeest. I mean, they're 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 not really being logical. They're not being thoughtful. They're doing kind of what they see others of their ilk and you know their their uh, people that they know or know of or what they see. Uh, they're being handed simple. They, Again, fascism has always thrived. In fact, it's absolutely essential to have scapegoats for fascism to work. So you can't really do fascism without scapegoats. The scapegoats have to be big. They have to be serious. They have to be heartfelt. They have to be embraced. They have to be encouraged. So, you know, maybe the biggest example of modern times is, you know, the Jews in, in, in Germany and Europe. Um, they don't have the exact equivalent of that now, but they have a complex of different scapegoats for all of us. You know, again, you know, in Germany, when they went after the Jews, the Jews, they went after the Jews really, really big time. But they went after all the others in tandem. I mean, they went after women. They went after gays. They went after, you know, uh, mentally ill or retarded people, uh, political people, intellectuals. uh, You know, they went just about anybody you can think of. The Jews happen to be the primary and biggest scapegoat. Jews are not presently that level of scapegoat. But I think uh, Jewish communities are being very, conservative Jewish communities are being very naive in thinking that that's not coming down the pike and that it could get, you know, really, really big once again, as it has repeatedly in history. So right now has not been the optimal time for the fascists to pull the Jewish race card but I think that that's altogether possible, that it still can happen. It's uh, not something that is ideally in the strategy of you know, Trump and Putin and their likes. You know, Vic- Victor Orban has been using it, 
But as you see around the edges of uh, Trumpism in America, there's a lot of very serious anti-Semitism emerging of the, of, at a level that has not been seen in decades. You know, really? so, so it's pretty serious stuff, you know. Now, when, I, when I talk to my family about things like, uh, you know, about you talk about Palestine or something like that, because I've heard different journalists talk about things that were happening, atrocities happening to the Muslim population there. And my family is very Christian and they are 100 percent when at least when it comes to that kind of thing, they stand with the Jewish community because of their Christian beliefs. And there's a very strong Jewish Christian alliance at this point. And it is, you know, it is part of the conservative success. Um, my, what I'm trying to talk about, what I just said is, I don't believe that that alliance is necessarily going to hold. And I think that conservative Jews who subscribe to this are maybe in for a shock at what the future might reveal. You know, Mussolini had a number of prominent wealthy Jews as his chief supporters. Uh, he was very involved with them. Every one of those people ended up dead except his mistress, who survived him and returned to uh, Italy to write a book about him and praising him. So, Jewish woman. So, I, I can't, uh, you know... Um, if you are, if you are a minority person, or you know you 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 have any reason to be concerned about your own uh, freedom and civil liberties and that kind of thing, you're making a big mistake in thinking that the current movement is only going to get this group or that group, and you're safe. Yeah, and, and and right now, so right now the scapegoats are, I mean, pretty much it's it's the um, the immigrants from the southern border, but uh, see, and when you look at the African American communities, as I've talked about in my podcast, when I when I started my podcast, I honestly didn't think that things were nearly as bad for African Americans as they were 50 years ago. Then I started researching my podcast and the War on Drugs and Michelle Alexander's book, and I'm like, holy shit! How it was right in front of me. Forty percent of our prisons are African American. They make up. 6% of the population of, of black men, that kind of thing. So, so they, they, someone was like, they, they're already, they already got them. And now they're, they're going after other ice. Um, yeah. I mean, they, you know, they are uh, going, going after everybody. And um, what's giving me a pause at this moment is that, you know, I'm just thinking, so I, I actually work in addiction. I'm now retired, but I worked in addiction. I worked in method on maintenance for many years. And I worked for the biggest clinic system, uh, Mount Sinai, Beth Israel. Uh, that's the biggest clinic uh, methadone system in the world outside of Hong Kong. And um, what's interesting about our population, we certainly had a, had a, had a black population there. Now, this is inner Manhattan. Uh, actually, they have clinics all over the boroughs. And, but our clinic population was, was predominantly Hispanic. And that's a vulnerable uh, population, addiction population, that we sort of falls through the cracks of this discussion. Uh, I mean, they are heavily affected by addiction. And, you know, so anyway, it was just a, something that occurred to me. No. 
Well, I'd like to talk more about the the methadone thing because uh, you know that really relates to the podcast and and in this country, you know that's that's the uh, the only really there's only two drugs that they're offering addicts, uh, uh, opiate addicts, and it's methadone or suboxone, and um, which I really think are is is not doing a lot of help. I mean, it's helping for sure, helping people, but there's a lot of people that it's not helping. Whereas a drug like a heroin, a heroin itself would actually help more, um, but. What what are your thoughts on um like have you heard about the heroin clinics in Switzerland? Oh yes, yes, and you know the the experiments you know as as has been pointed out on a number of your podcasts, there's wonderful analysis of that in several of those podcasts. Uh, in uh, especially Switzerland and Portugal, there was a great deal of skepticism initially, but um, they have uh, those those uh, uh, situations have gone beyond anybody's expectations they've been very very successful um you know major harm reduction approaches we had our own version of this experience going back in the early aids epidemic when they were first talking about needle exchanges and um our mayor then was ed koch who was uh, who had gone from being a democrat to being republican he was a closeted gay man he was most, he stayed in the closet because he was worried about being reelected. Um, but anyway, when, 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 when needle exchanges, they were brand new in Europe, were first suggested and said that they worked, they really showed promise. Koch's response was over my dead body because he had embraced this sort of conservative view that you're gonna give these addicts you know, who are, you know, you're going to give them uh, the means to just, uh, you know, uh, not only uh, continue their their habits, their addiction, you know, uh, without control, but to spread it to others. And I mean, it was, you know, so um, we had this activist organization and movement uh, act up, which developed and they made it there. They, they weren't the first to try out needle exchanges. But on, uh, they made that a top priority to promote needle exchanges. Needle exchanges, it turned out, are, I think, probably the most effective form of harm reduction in the history of drug addiction treatment. Um, nothing has been more impressive in reducing uh, overdose overdoses in reducing uh, the spread of disease. There were two major diseases that were being spread by needle use. One was HIV and one was hepatitis C. So the, this whole thing of, you know, getting people out of any kind of shooting galleries was so urgent that it made the case for even people in even chronic relapsers in the methadone system who were constantly diverting and using drugs and all that, if they were in the shooting galleries three days less a month, three days less a month than what they had originally, that could prevent, you know, countless uh, cases of spreading of HIV and hepatitis C. So uh, to say nothing about, you know, overdose. So even people who are in a lot of trouble and are not really being 
grossly or, you know, helped or, it, to the level that other people might think they, they need to be. Um, if they were in treatment, it was tremendous benefit to everybody. Now, can I take this, all of this, and I realize we're getting, when you're, when you're talking to me, you quickly get into uh, issues of discursiveness and, you know, I'm kind of all over the place. Wait, wait a minute. Where were we? How, where is all this? How is this? Well, one thing I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you is you said about um, you, nothing's been more beneficial as far as harm reduction than the needle exchange programs. I just wanted to say, though, that, that that's post-prohibition. Uh, Before prohibition, I think the prescri prescribing of opiates to addicts was even more helpful than a needle exchange program ever would have been. Yes, there were, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the laws are completely draconian. They're anti people there and they 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 only uh, you know they cause uh, worse illness and death and the ways that are talked about in your podcast at great length but let me give you a little vivid example of where to bring all of this back as i was trying to say of where we're headed with the autocracies okay so do you, okay so let's put this in perspective the autocrat approach to drug addiction so Duterte and the Philippines, mm -hmm. you know about that, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. So that was these, these are literally death squads. Anybody suspect for being, you know, a, a drug addict or selling drugs or whatever, anything, just go out and kill them and yep. en masse. So I have no idea the numbers of people that were killed that way. Okay, in Mike Pence's Indiana, when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, they started, uh, that when the opioid crisis happened, they started getting more cases of HIV AIDS. Mike Pence was dead set against, uh, against uh, needle exchanges because you're encouraging drug addiction. He came around, okay? He came around uh, not too long after that, was persuaded to see that it was a, it was a good thing. So he you know, kind of went, went along with it. But the best example, the most vivid example of where we're headed in terms of uh, shockers and uh, you know, uh, reality testing. Do you remember Mayor Giuliani? And do you remember what happened here with, uh, with opiates and methadone uh, under Mayor Giuliani? No. And, uh, okay, well, when he decided to run again for mayor, he made his platform this. Everybody on methadone maintenance would have to be off methadone maintenance in six months and all clinics were gonna be shut down. This was a completely, you know, drain society's resources. Clearly they were kind of, you know, uh, drug addicts, you know, without any, uh, any purpose, no responsibility, no integrity, no reliability. They were, uh, you know, and this, you know, what they needed was the shock of not being able to get any more drugs and having to buckle down and work like other people and whatever. So that was to, that was a major point. Uh, that was a major uh, plan that Giuliani had on his platform to um, for his mayoral agenda. Okay, somehow 
you know, and this this was at a time when Giuliani's bellicosity was the equivalent of Trump's. That is, he never ever backed down on anything, and anybody gave him any lip or flack at any level, he gave it right back, just the way you described. Okay. Mm-hmm. Somehow, somebody pulled him from behind the curtain, took him to the side, and and managed to make him understand that that was going to be an absolute catastrophe at every level, including for him and his mayoralty. Mm-hmm. So effective, so, so at, across the board is that consensus that he, he just dropped it. We never heard about it. You know, after making it his major platform, we never heard about it again. So fortunately, but that doesn't mean it's not going to keep happening. Right. I mean, you have these complete crazos out there who's, you know, they're, I don't know. Um, well, I talked, I talked to a fireman once before I was doing the podcast and he was, and I was, he was telling me about all the, about how people would overdose in, uh, it would happen in like se- segments where you would, you would have two months with no overdoses. And then all of a sudden you'd have 10 in a week and it was because of fentanyl in, introducing, but, and he was this, uh, this, you know, I, I don't know where, where he stood politically, but he basically said he wished he couldn't, he wished he didn't have to save their lives because if they just would all die then we wouldn't have any problem anymore if they could just wipe them out. And it was the most ignorant thing I'd ever heard. And I was like, you realize that's not how addiction works. If they all died, there were just the next wave of people coming into, uh, you know, of age as addicts would also have to die. And every generation this would have to happen. And this is the detorte. Uh, this is his kind of thing. And our president at the time, Donald Trump, he praised detorte's methods over there. Said, well, if we were just a little harsher... And and so you are you you're suggesting that it's possible that that kind of mentality that like you said that Pence and that um, Giuliani uh, you know had but then they kind of reversed that it's possible that it could come into the mainstream and not get reversed. Oh my God! Absolutely, it's a certainty. When uh, when Hitler uh, was democratically elected on his third one for election. He, he lost the first two times and, and won the third. Hitler was imprisoned for his outrageous statements and behaviors. And um, he was, um, you know, but he in prison, he became a kind of even more a folk hero. People were concerned about, about Hitler, but, and they, you know, they were sometimes very concerned, but they, the, what happened once he took full autocratic power is something that nobody foresaw. So um, nobody imagined how extreme and intense, you know, and bad things could get. Are you, if you're asking me, do I think we could have that level of, uh, of development? Absolutely. I think we're dealing with the same kinds of people, the same kinds of mentality, you know, Trump, Putin, the, you know, Orban, Duterte, uh, you know, Maduro, I mean, all these, you know, these uh, Xi, all these extreme autocrats who, you know, are increasingly emboldened, you know, with their autocratic inclinations and behaviors. That's absolutely where we're headed. Now, in America, so how bad could it get? So let's say, apart from the global situation in America, 
we have a history of these conflicts um, and it's not a surprise that they were never resolved and that, um, you know, th so we had, we ended up in a civil war. Can that happen again? I absolutely think so. I mean, I don't know how, how exactly it would be work out, you know, it would be reconfigured. The optimistic picture there is that as bad as the American Civil War was, and it was awful, 700,000 people killed unnecessarily. It was just the worst, most awful thing. And, uh, despite that, um, you know, the, the, the aftermath of the war was one that was, you know, looked to the future of reconciliation and integration, despite endless setbacks of which this is maybe the biggest of modern times. But, um, you know, so that's where we are. Um, and I, I, one of my close friends actually is from New York City, and he and he, uh, he his theory with the whole Trump movement is that it is the rise of the South that that they've been predicting forever, absolutely. and it's not it's it's not just in the South now. It's a lot of people from Ohio, but it's the working class whites, and it's the Southern mentality, the people that didn't want to go along, you know, and and I and I I see that happening, and I definitely see it happening where I live. Where I live, uh, my neighbor, as soon as the election was over, there was a twenty twenty four Trump twenty twenty four flag you know, flying. So for the, and that's weird because it used to be after, you know, right before the election, everybody put up their political signs and political stuff. And then the election was over and then they took it down. And then four years later, you'd see it again. Not this time. It's not the, none of the signs have went down. New signs are being made. New hats are being made. New phrases are being made. Let's go Brandon there. I, I, I work in restaurants and bars around here and there will just be random chants where the whole bar will start chanting. Let's go Brandon. And it's um and it's very disturbing to me. It is it's very again reminiscent of what you would what I would picture being in Germany right before the war started. Did you ever see the movie Cabaret? No. Oh, okay. That's a that's a really outstanding movie about it's a musical about uh, this period for the war. Well, there's a scene in there that is exactly what you just described. There in the bar and a beer garden, an outdoor beer garden. And you see this, you know, this, um, uh, somebody uh, comes, uh, an, a young Nazi soldier comes in and starts singing and uh, the public is galvanized and all these, you know, uh, all this uh, fascist stuff uh, comes out, you know. The, the, so again, it's go back to the wildebeest analogy. You, you, you know, you can go to the wildebeest with all the logic in the world. And you can say, this isn't helping you. You're heading right for a area that's totally dry. They no longer have the fields out there anymore and you know, making a big mistake. And, you know, but it's going to keep going with the, with, with the, with the herd. Yeah. yeah. It's a scary thought. And, and I am wondering where, where the country goes. And also I was thinking, you know, cause Donald Trump is very old. And, and I'm, and I'm thinking like, it's, but the problem is I, the way I see it is that what he's created is, is, it doesn't matter if it's him or somebody else. I think whoever takes, if say DeSantis, DeSantis, I think is a good shot at being the next Republican nominee and possibly president. I think that he doesn't become a, a rational Republican the way we've had in the past. He becomes a new, he has to, he has to be the leader of the new movement and he's going to go in that direction. And, and what do you think about that? I, I, I absolutely, I totally agree with that. Um, 
with this one little caveat for the biggest autocratic movements to have their biggest impact, you really need a genuinely charismatic leader. Uh, as, as uncomfortable as it is for me to have to admit this, I think that Donald Trump uh, does fill that bill. He's an autocrat in the totally in the vein of Hitler, Stalin, uh, you know, leading leading autocrats of, of history. Um, Putin also uh, is 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 such a figure. Castro was kind of such a figure. The others are autocrats, and they are ultra conservative, and they're they're fascist in various ways. But they they don't have the same level of charisma. I think Ron DeSantis is certainly trying for that. Uh, yeah. Orban has 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 had considerable success. I mean, there are variations on the theme. Viktor Orban plays a kind of a sneakier, quieter, a little bit more complicated game, uh, and and has been has gone very far. But um, you know, a, a lot of the others, Erdogan, and you know, they 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 don't have, I think, the full potential for a complete autocratic takeover and revolution like what happened in Germany, uh, I think Trump is the is the figure of greatest concern along those lines. And, um, and for how old he is, he is actually um, oddly very healthy, it seems. Um, so, yeah. and, and I, I, do, I, I do agree with what you're saying that you, he is that leader. I remember I was in Key West in 2020, me and my wife got married in 2020 in Key West and um, I went into a store there and, and immediately when I walked in, I overheard, I, I saw, first I saw the Trump paraphernalia when I walked in and then I saw, and I overheard a woman talking to the cashier saying, Hey, you heard Trump's throwing a rally down here, you know, in August or whenever. And she was like, Oh yeah. And she's like, have you been to one? She's like, no. She's like, Oh my God, they are intoxicating. You have to go. And when I heard the word intoxicating, talking about a political rally, it was just, that's the scariest word I could have thought of. It's like, yeah, it is. It's like going to a, a church event where you're just mesmerized. Yeah, the other, the other, the other word, the other analogy that comes to mind for me that I, I mean, I'm just telling you what I actually think about. I'm not trying to be specifically, you know, extremely scurrilous in how I'm describing these people. I'm, I'm long, well past feelings of real hatred or resentment. I mean, I'm just kind of, you know, going with uh, how I see things, but. Have you ever seen any of the zombie films? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, so, a couple of things to note about zombies. Um, you know, they get turned into zombies. They don't ever get turned back into normal people. They, you know, they're, they're rabid. They're thoughtless. They just like uh, machines of, you know, uh, aggression and, uh, you know, evil. And, you know, uh, but they don't there's they're not they're hopeless i mean they're not people they're not there is you can't uh deal with them by um you know reason or you know if you maybe change their like you were mentioning about the guy who's out of work 
So if you go to a zombie and say, look, I've got a job for you, that's not necessarily going to resolve the situation. I mean, right. once a zombie, I think most, most of they stay zombies. So yeah. And I, and I've, I saw it happen. It was very strange, right? Right after the election, I saw a lot of these, I don't want to call them zombies if, as if they're listening, but, uh, but you know, for the analogy, when, when, they were trying to say the election was stolen. I saw a lot of people kind of almost wake up for just a brief moment where they said, democracy is not decided by the loser. It's decided by the votes. And people were saying these things and they were like, I support Trump, but I don't support stealing democracy. And they were saying these things. I was like, oh, rationality is coming alive. But it lasted for a brief moment. And then they all started to believe the lie and they all turned right back into it and go, you know what? There's, there's a lot of questions here. I'm actually quite now that now I'm questioning a democracy. And the one, one of the tweets that Trump said that, that released was the most scary tweets was the department of Homeland security said it was the most secure election we've ever had. And Trump tweeted that and said that was because of him. Thanks to him that it was so secure. But in the same tweet, he said it was stolen. Uh, the, the lies, I mean, that's totally, you know, well-documented, you know, the, the unbelievable extent of lying. And, you know, but Trump can be tricky. I mean, in my own case, let me give you an example of this. So um, I'm someone who's very, very concerned about anti-Semitism. I've spent, you know, much of my writing career writing about it. I'm very concerned about it. So, um, and I'm very concerned about the future of Israel. I think that there's genocidal hatred is very common, uh, you know, and, and Trump has really in some ways been a heroic figure for Jewish people and for Israelis. And he's actually made some breakthroughs and achievements in the Middle East that, you know, you can't fail to take note of. So, and I myself have, you know, been, you know, sometimes impressed with some of this. The problem is this level of autocracy, this level of a kind of uh, fascism uh, that he embodies and that he represents is not something that Jews can, can trust in. I mean, they may think, I think they're conservative Jews who figure, well, it's a little concerning, this guy, but I mean, he's doing all this good now. So that's the way they thought in Germany. There was a lot of the moneyed people, the industrialists, they were getting uncomfortable with Hitler, but they, they said, you know, well, he's doing good, some good things. He's cleaning some things up. You know, hopefully he'll calm down, quiet down a little bit once he gets into power and, you know, we'll, you know. Uh, but that's not, it's the opposite that happened. And that is, I think, the real concern about Donald Trump. He's really a fascist. There's no question about it. And his main goal is to get as much power for himself as he possibly can. He'll do anything and everything to do that. And if eventually at some point that means playing the race card, and in this case, I'm talking about anti-Semitism, do you think he's really going to hesitate to do that? I mean, it's, a, it's a scary thought. I, uh, I, you know, I was watching the the debates when um when he was throwing what I what I considered the most softball question of all time is will you denounce white supremacy? I was like, oh, this is a Fox News softball question if I ever seen one, and then he didn't, and I was sitting there in shock. Like, how do you not just say, of course I denounce white supremacy? Boom, next question. He didn't do that, and it was shocking. And it was because, you know, on hindsight, it's like, well, he has a lot of people in that group that 
were supporting him and he didn't want to denounce them and, or something. I, I don't know. I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there, the, that's his base. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that he is invested personally in racism at the same level that Hitler was personally invested in anti-Semitism. I, I, I'm not sure uh, that that's the case. But I mean, that if that's where he's getting a lot of his support, and his, that these were, well, these were the people that Hitler rallied, base, this kind of base. And they, you know, they brought him to power and kept him in power. I think Donald Trump is using the exact same strategy, whether you know, but but Hitler was was really seriously deeply invested in anti-Semitism in ways that don't have quite uh, that that can't be compared to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't see this. I don't see the same. No, I, I agree with you. Hitler Trump. was actually a racist, whereas Trump, like when I say when he wouldn't denounce white supremacy, it's not because he's a white supremacist. It's because he didn't want to disparage people exactly. that supported Ex him. Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 but, and I guess, so I guess one is more scary. I would say I would be more scared of the actual racist of and Hitler than the person who just wants power. But like you said, if the power is coming from a group of people who are racist, then that becomes just as scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm um, so, but I'm hoping, I mean, we're, we're going to see what's going to happen. You know, this year's the big election year and, um and, uh, you know, the Republicans are pretty, we're pretty much a lock. Uh, but now I don't know with Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I don't know. What Do you think that it's possible that they, they're going to lose some of the support and could possibly lose the election after this? It's or? not. It doesn't seem to be happening. And there's fragmentation among Democrats. And uh, so, you know, I could not possibly be more concerned. Um, you know, uh, we, you know, I. I don't know how comfortable you are with prayer in terms of your own background. I'm very comfortable with it. And uh, I'm going to start praying a lot more <laughs> about this. I, I, I don't, I don't uh, pray. You know, I, I wish I did. I wish I did. I, my whole family is, you know, very into that. Um, but I guess I should, I should definitely, you know, wouldn't hurt. Um, I, I wonder what, what happens though. I was curious. Here's an, uh, a question you might know more than me. What could the Senate right now well, do? Because right now we have, we're getting a little um, connection issue. Um, can you hear me? No, we're, we're uh, frozen. Oh, are we back? Uh, we're back. I don't, okay. what, I don't know what happened. All right. Um, so what I was going to ask you something about the Senate. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, like with the Roe v. Wade being overturned, right, right now there is a Democrat, uh, Democratic majority. Why can't, do they just not have enough of a majority to where they can make it a law? I don't have enough certain knowledge to be able to answer that. I really, I, you know, I'm just sort of a, general public person in terms of observing all these yeah. it just seems like very little can get done uh, 
you know, and uh, you can't, uh, even if something gets passed, it seems to somehow get rescinded or uh, not passed or, you know. So, uh, but I, I think it's important. The main thing I think is not to underestimate the present danger and to really take it very, very seriously and not have any complacency about it. And what you do beyond that is going to be kind of individual. I mean, I wish we had stronger uh, uh, resistance. I mean, it's, it, it really is terrifying. I mean, the, and it's happening on such a large scale with so many different aspects. I mean, the gun control stuff. I mean, it's all the right-wing extremists who have the guns, plus, you know, a good a good number of people who are just kind of conservative and not necessarily uh, far right. Um, but the, the liberals and the Democrats, these are people who by and large are, are not gun people. You know? I know. And I, and I, um, you know, I saw last night, there was a story in the news where a person with a gun stopped a mass shooting. And, and yep. when, I, when I saw that, I was like, of course, of course the person's a hero and I'm not going to say they're not, but the problem I have is how many shootings happened where there wasn't a guy to save him with a gun. And now you're going to point to this one example and you're going to use this as a reason why guns should be completely allowed everybody to carry. And it's like, and, and that's all Fox news is talking about was, Oh, this guy, a hero gunman. It's like, this is not the story, the, the whole story. The gun thing is just so uh, it's like so many other things. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's so obvious. No other country in the world, none, including the autocracies, have anything like the gun violence that we have. They all have gun laws, and they all have much, much less violence as a result. But it's a simple slam dunk on what the issue is. And you know, we I, I have no, I do not understand why we can't somehow get beyond this. I mean, uh, it, I don't understand. So let's say I'm a conservative Trump Republican. Okay. But I mean, okay, so let's, let's say that's a good one. So let's say I'm that person. Don't I care about my, my uh, uh, you know, my in-laws or my daughter or my, the granddaughter in terms of their safety and going to a mall or to a movie theater. I mean, that part I don't get. I mean, I would think that at some point they would say, wait, this is my family we're talking about. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't trust the liberals. I don't like them. Uh, I believe in guns. I believe it. But, you know, we got to do something. I mean, I don't want to see anything happen to my granddaughter. Right. That. Why isn't that happening on a larger scale? That I don't get. Because you would think that would be a pretty pro-life argument. If you're pro-life, you would want to protect the the people who are alive in your life. And uh, but the, the, I, you know, I have family that that I can so I can tell you what their mentality is. Is that they think if you once you take away guns, there's nothing to stop, um, you know, tyranny. And my problem is, well, what happened when we have a, a tyrant and the Second Amendment people back him? Because that's kind of what we just had happen all the second amendment people were going to back the tyrants. So it doesn't really work in, in your favor. That argument kind of loses some steam. Again, you're, you're going to your parents and asking them to step out of the will to be stampede. Yeah. And they're not capable of doing that at this point. 
No, they're not. And again, and they just accuse me of being uh, naive. And then my own stampede, I'm a you know liberal, and I and yeah. I talk, I'm and I'm you always can. open. I'm open to conservative ideas. I'm open. I'm I'm always very. I try to be very open. I'm not like I'm not rigid. I'm not like oh I, this is where I stand. You will not you will not change my mind. I'm open. I'll, like I'm listening, but nothing you're nothing you're saying on your side is making sense again when children are being shot in classrooms uh we have to do something and if anything if you're not if you're not willing to give up all guns we at least need to get rid of um you know these uh, any weapons that are designed straight for killing men like weapons of war we, we don't allow people to have nuclear bombs and grenades and stuff so why are they allowed to have firearms that are made for killing people but also even just a shotgun, you can do a lot of damage with. So we still have to say, well, what, what about the kid who's, I mean, people need to have many more, way more mental te- health tests. But I, to me, it just seems like we need to get somehow start getting rid of the guns. Just, you know, you got to start figuring out how to get in the road. Because look at, country, like you said, countries like the UK and Australia, they don't have mass shootings. or no. not, not to the numbers that we do. Right, they don't, right they don't have them in Russia. They don't have them in uh, in Cuba. I mean, that. <laughs> I I, well, I, I work in I work in the public, and you know how many times I have anxiety when I just I just a random thought will occur to me. What what happens where I'm standing? I I look for exits to make sure, you know, like if something happens, where am I going to run or or what can I am I going to be able to do? And, yeah. and of course, the conservatives say, well, you need to have a gun. Well, I applied for my carry permit, and they didn't give it to me. I don't know why. I probably didn't fill out something right, but I, I didn't. I the reality is, I don't want to have a gun. I don't want to have to do that. But I I thought about it, and it's like, well, why should that be my 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 responsibility to have to shoot and kill somebody if they go if you know it's just a weird th- world that we live in oh i should have i should have a gun no we should live in a world where that 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 possibility is to should be really minimized the possibility somebody just but the reality is any person in this whole region i live in can go buy a gun and buy all the ammunition they want and they can come anywhere they want and start shooting if they lose their mind there's nothing to stop them it's completely out of control the whole thing you know it's just um uh, but I, I no longer, you know, I spent four years, the four years of Trump's presidency being apoplectically angry, like every day. I mean, to the point that my life partner who died uh, earlier this year, uh, who was saw all this and totally agreed with me, he just said, you know, you've got to contain it. I mean, and, and, and he was right. I mean, I, I, and so I'm, I know, I mean, I'm sort of letting loose a little bit on this show, but otherwise I am not engaging at this level. I no longer, uh, you know, try to persuade people. I, I know, you know, like the thing with your parents, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that with my, I, I do still, I do actually still have some arguments, but uh, in many situations I've just backed off because I don't really, I'm not, op, I'm not optimistic uh, that, anything I can say can make a difference. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I have not talked to my parents about political stuff since Roe v. Wade overturned. I haven't talked about it because I know that if I talk about it, I will not persuade them to disagree and I will not be happy with the conversation. So I just choose not to have the conversation. Yeah. And sometimes that's the best way. But I also, I mean, with my parents, that makes sense. With my family, that makes sense because I'm not going to change their mind. But in, in general, on my podcast in public, I'm going to talk about it and I want to talk about it. And I want to, uh, if I can change, because there are a few people that are still on the fence. Don't, you know, and I, those are the people that you want to say, hey, don't fall on the other side of the fence, like stay on this side. But um, for the people that, you know, are already on the other side, like you said, they're already in the stampede. Yeah, you're not changing their minds, but we, 
the, the tidal wave of fascism that we're experiencing now is very similar to what happened in Germany. In 1928, the Nazis were still a fringe movement, and within a year, a couple of year, a year, uh, it suddenly had uh, overwhelmed everything. And I think that we're we're in that kind of a place, and um, you know, it, uh, it just keeps getting worse and worse, and um, it does, we don't seem to be able to uh, to stop it. That's it's a scary thought. Um... And I'll say this, we're going to wrap up soon, but I don't want to end on such a dire note. Uh, was there something we could add to this to, uh, to, to, to end on a little lighter? Well, note? we have, uh, we, we didn't talk, <laughs> we, we get so heated about all the stuff that's going on, but I think it's pertinent to the bigger picture of, you know, drug uh, addiction and treatment. I mean, there's, there's lots to, more to talk about there. And in terms of my own background and experience, it's pretty eclectic and uh, covers a lot sort of large range of topics. I wrote a memoir, I've written five books. One of them is an anthology about Larry Kramer, who was the sort of leading figure in, um, in the AIDS movement and in the organization ACT UP. I was, he and I were co-founders of the organization Gay Men's Health Crisis and uh, still kind of one of the leading uh, uh, AIDS information and service organizations. And, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, but my other two books are kind of being released now as what's being called the Jewish Wagnerism series. So we we haven't even talked about, I know you're a musician, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, so we haven't even talked about um, issues of, culture and art and music, which is a big interest of mine and kind of is the substrate, the subject of my um, of my two books, which uh, have all these other issues with, you know, surrounding them. Um, the first book is called Confessions of a Jewish Wagnerite, Being Gay and Jewish in America. That's a memoir that was first published in 1990. And um, the the current book is called On the Future of Wagnerism, Art, Intoxication, Codepe- Art, Intoxication, Addiction, Codependence, and Recovery. And it's all about, you know, addiction as it relates to issues of art and music and um, culture. And uh, as I've experienced it in my own life, I am also a recovering uh, addict myself and um you know i've had and then i've worked i worked for uh 30 years in the field of addiction so it's a little bit all over the place here with with um aids and addiction and richard wagner and music and culture and trump and just about anything else you could think of uh i've had a strong uh and hopefully interesting opinion about and it's in my books my website if you want to know more about about me and uh, these issues and my my books um they're on amazon but uh, you can go to my, my website lawrencedmass.com l-a-w-r-e-n-c-e-d-m-a-s-s.com lawrencedmass.com and you can also look me up on amazon amazon.com so that's 
pretty much the lay of the land. Uh. <laughs> that's, that, that's great. And um, yeah, I'll, um, I'll also add a little intro with all the information at the beginning of the podcast so people can know where to get your books. Um, and um, uh, yeah, thank you so much for doing this podcast. This has really, really been cool talking with you. Well, thank you. I think you've done some really outstanding work with this site. I, I hope it thank will you. continue because it's a it's such an important area, addiction and addiction treatment. And uh, your sites is one of the one of the best uh, uh, you know collections of podcasts that addressing the current situation. Well, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Oh, right, well, so will you will you let me know? Uh, yeah, I'll I'll put you on the e- email list. Um, so it'll be like three podcasts. Um, I think I think there's two more coming out next week and the following week, and then you'll be out in like three weeks. So you'll get an email, um, letting you know that it's that it's out. Okay, great. All right, Aaron. Well, thanks so much again. Really appreciate it. It's an honor and a, and a privilege. Thanks. Oh, th- thank you so much. You bet. All right. Take care. All right, you too. All right, Peace Nicks. As always, if you like what we're doing here at the Peace on Drugs podcast, give us a five-star rating on Apple. Go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Peace on Drugs podcast. Again, thanks so much for being a part of this with me and listening, tuning in. We're going to let Twiggy Branches take us on out. out. You pay for what you can't.
Yeah.